0: Welcome back to the Jacob Kelly interview series. Today is a takeaways episode. And the takeaways episode is where I sit down with you and we discuss my most recent interview. And today we're discussing my interview with Fred Mandel. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to the interview yet, Fred is a legendary session and touring musician from Estevan, Saskatchewan. I always love when I get to interview a fellow Canadian And Fred went on tour and worked on albums with a number of famous bands in the 70s and 80s. This isn't the entire list, but he's gone on tour and worked on albums with Queen, Elton John, Pink Floyd, Alice Cooper, just to name a few. He's worked with other bands, performers, gone on tour, worked on albums. Lady Gaga is another one that he worked on in the studio with um, for a little while. So Fred is a very, like I said, legendary musician. And it was really cool to get to talk with him. When I first found out about Fred, I was spending my couple month deep dive into Queen. And I read um, Queen Unseen, I believe is the name of the book, by Peter Hinchcliffe, I think is his last name. He goes by Raddy. Ratty was his nickname. He was Freddie Mercury's personal assistant. And so I read his memoir about his time touring with Queen and being one of their roadies. And he mentioned Fred in that book. And I wrote it down. I, I noted. I highlighted it in my Kindle, I should say. And I was like, you know, Fred seems a cool guy. Like, let me, when I do start this show, let me reach out to Fred. Uh, Let me, let me, let me jot down who he is. Because when I, when I came across his name, I did a quick Google search found out more about him, found his website, contact form, all the things. And I was like, let me write this down, save this link. So I know when I start the show, I I reach out to Fred. And so I reached out to Fred and Fred answered me pretty much right away saying that he was down to the interview, but we had to just push it a couple months. He was a little busy at the time. And so he did. And to his credit, I circled back a couple months later, and he was all for the interview. And so we did this interview a couple weeks ago now at this point. And another thing, too, I want to give a shout-out to Fred for is Fred was super patient. We had some technical difficulties. Um, I was recording with on Zencaster at the time, and Fred couldn't get into the Zencaster call, so we had to jump off of Zencaster, go into Zoom, and record the podcast in the Zoom. And the thing with Zoom is Zoom, I, I, I don't pay for Zoom. I have the free Zoom, so it kicks us out after 40 minutes so we had to leave the call and come back in for the second half of the podcast over two separate recordings and Fred was super patient through it all so I really want to give him a big shout out but he's such a nice guy like just a good dude you know it's always fun when you get to sit down and interview people and they're just they're just good humans um that's Fred Mandel so I was really really stoked that I got the chance to interview him um he actually called me at the time of this recording he called me two three days ago and so we did the whole transcript for this interview I'm trying to get every single episode of this transcribed because ultimately the goal, not the goal, but one of the things I want to do with this show is after a hundred interviews, I want to do, I don't know if it's going to be a book in my brain right now, it's a coffee table book of all of the interviews with some of my personal notes from when I, that I take after the interview is like how to improve and things like that. Some of my notes on the research side, excerpts from the transcript, uh, maybe pictures if I have them or can get them um, quotes and stuff like that, just like a nice fun table book of like the experience of doing this show. And so I'm trying to get every single one of these interviews transcribed. So whenever that point in time comes of assembling a book, I have everything. I should, have, I have all the pieces I actually to put them together. I don't need to get the pieces as well. And so part of that is doing the transcript. And Fred called me on Saturday. I was at the gym and he was like, Hey man, in the interview, Um, there's a section where I was saying how, unfortunately, Jeff Beck has passed, but the transcript says, fortunately, can you change that? Um, and he wasn't upset. He just was just obviously didn't want that to come across in the transcript, which I totally understand. I'm, I was embarrassed for not having caught that when I, when I defined a review on the transcript and I was, yeah, I was embarrassed. And there was a couple other things. Like I miss sourced, one of the musicians he worked with. I had a name he'd never heard of there. And Donnie, uh, for Dominic Triano, I spelled his name D-O-N-N-Y and not D-O-N-N-I-E. Um, so for historical accuracy, which is important to me um, when doing anything, especially with this stuff when we're talking about the history of art, music, culture, um, I want to make sure everything is accurate. And so I think Tua scratch he read the transcript, which I appreciate. Like I remember on my old podcast, I would send people the interview I would just ask them if they had any thoughts. I would never get, basically, I'm saying is no one ever gave me feedback hardly on anything. And so the fact that Fred took the time to one, he actually just texted me like 20 minutes ago saying that he watched the video and he thoroughly enjoyed it and he liked it. He said he did a great job. Again, just a really good person. Um, But the fact that he also took the time to read the transcript and like give me a heads up on some things and like, um, yeah, I was just, I just could not believe that. I mean, like, that's probably one of the worst typos you could have in a transcript. Fortunately, he's passed. Not unfortunately, he's passed. Uh, which was what it was supposed to be, unfortunately. And it has since been changed. And luckily, like, the interview wasn't live yet. I don't even know how Fred found the transcript. Like, the page was live, um, but the interview wasn't live yet, and he just must have found my website. But, um, yeah, just a little oops on my side. And one thing, too, with the Fred the Fred transcript, which I'm debating whether I'll ever do this again because it took so long, is every single time Fred would reference something, I would link to it, like hyperlink The transcript. So if he mentioned Dominic Troiano or Jeff Beck or Freddie Mercury or Brian May or Eddie Van Halen or any of these names he would reference, I would link out to it. Or even like this type of piano playing, I'd link out to it. So you can get all the context. But that took so long because there was just a lot. We covered a lot. You know, Fred's worked with a lot of guys. That's one thing I actually appreciated too is like he, his recall on every single person he's worked with is incredibly high. And he makes sure he mentions every guy that was in the room, which is really cool to me. He's never, like, when talking with Fred, he will, from what I gathered, he will talk in the same regard as some of the most famous people that he's worked with versus some of his friends that he was in a band with in high school. Like, he will he will make sure that their names are right. He will, he'll reference their names. He'll say who they are. And, like, the tonality doesn't change. It's like he could be talking, like, again, someone he was in a high school band with. Or Freddie Mercury. And like it sounds like he, like it, he, it doesn't sound like he's putting either one on a different pedestal. And that's really cool to hear and to see that he, that he, he, but just, I was just blown away at his recall and the amount of guys he remembered was in the room and everything. And so, but either way, I was going through and I was trying to hyperlink everything. So anyone that reads that transcript and wants to learn more and dig deeper, they can do that. And so if you listening to this right now want an education on like 1970s, 1980s rock and roll, just skim through the transcript and just open the hyperlinks. You'll get down so many different rabbit holes. You'll learn so much about so many different guys. Um, And so I recommend it if you want to, even like more than 70s, 80s. There's a lot in there, a lot to unpack, a lot to dig deeper. So this isn't just an interview. There's a whole other experience to be had on the website if you really want to dig deep into the transcript of this, which I recommend you do because I spent a long time hyperlinking everything. But now I digress. Let's get into some of my takeaways. I have quite a few here for my conversation with fred my first takeaway is that fred's goal when he worked on any piece of music was to elevate the song not just to add something for the sake of adding it i just liked that as a mentality that anything you do should elevate what you're working on and i think that's just like a mindset i want to bring moving forward whether it be with these interviews or whether it be with the youtube videos i do the essays that i write the screenplays that i write my job (laughs) If my boss is listening to this, I'm sorry. I listed that as, like, the sixth option. But just that mentality of everything you do should enhance what you're working on. And it feels so often, especially, like, as someone who likes to make things artistically as a creator or whatever, is sometimes it feels like you're just adding stuff to add stuff for the sake of adding it. And it's just having that lens of everything you're doing when you're making something is is this enhancing what i'm working on why is like having i guess a level i guess my kind of how i interpret this as my for myself is like having a level of intentionality with everything i'm adding to a piece and making sure that it should be there and understanding why it's there and how it makes it better is something i think i want to try and incorporate moving forward cuz like i said sometimes and like sometimes i understand too creatively like when you're just working on something you just get in flow and things happen and it's not necessarily like breaking down the process to like micro on a micro level and really trying to like hammer into every single thing, but like just having moments of awareness and pause to understand what you're doing and not just like blindly running through whatever you're making, making sure there is a level of intentionality there with what you're doing. That was kind of how I interpret that when he said that, his goal is to elevate the song, not just add something. Um, and two kind of like as a second piggyback takeaway off of that is like what Fred said is is that like, because I asked him, like, how do you know when what you're doing adds to the song? And he kind of said, like, you're just kind of guessing, and that you kind of you know based off of your experience and your intuition. And with that too, it's like, and I've talked with Mike Hill about this in episode number one of this show, is in order to you can you can build your intuition through experience. And so to translate what Fred said was like he knew what he wanted to add to a song based off of all of the experience he'd had as a musician, you know, like he'd spent time six nights a week, plus a matinee performing. He's worked on albums. He'd been in bands since he was in high school. Like he'd put in so much time as a musician that when it came time to work on songs, he had so much to fall back on so much to inform the decisions that he was making. And so In order to know what will actually elevate what you're working on, you kind of just have to do the thing and learn and get experience and let that experience build your intuition. And again, how I look at intuition, how I describe it, and this is kind of like appropriating one of um, Pharrell's, Pharrell talked about this with Rick Rubin uh, on a GQ interview, and this is kind of where I get my definition of intuition is like, intuition is doing things in spite of data, in spite of history in spite of knowing what has worked, which is weird, right? Because I'm talking about how intuition is formed out of experience, which isn't I guess like history. The history of your work brings you to a level, brings you intuition. But intuition is doing things in spite of knowing what's in spite of what has worked in the past and knowing something's going to work without having seen what has worked with it in the past. And I feel like this is sounding confusing, but Intuition is born from experience and that experience teaches you how to make decisions without data. Trust, it's, it's more, I, to me it's more than trusting your gut because intuition I feel like comes from a place of experience and your gut doesn't. I guess that would be the distinction I would make between intuition and gut. And the third differential too is like taste. It's like knowing what is good and what isn't good. Um, what sounds good um, based off of what's already out there and what is good that exists right now. And kind of like two like Related to that, and I I mentioned earlier how Fred was touring and they were performing seven times a week, six times, six days in a row, Monday through Saturday and twice on Saturdays. And there's just something about putting your reps in that's so important, right? We live in a world now where you're able to post a TikTok and go viral and be, I don't want to say famous, because I think fame is actually diluted uh, along with greatness, which is something we'll talk about later. But we live in a world where it's possible to find success relative like quote unquote success in 24 hours. And there's just something that you don't get when you don't put the reps in first. You know, you don't pay your dues, which is something we talked about in this podcast as well, right? Like paying your dues, staying in shitty hotels, performing in shitty clubs, but getting to perform and getting to play and honing the craft and just again, putting the reps in. You know, and for Fred, like he he performed pop hundreds of times. I don't know the exact time and the exact number of shows, but it's definitely over a hundred. It could be thousands depending on how, like, I don't know. Again, it could be potentially thousands of times, thousands of performances before he ever played for 70,000 people at Anaheim Stadium. And there's, a, there's so much value you can get as an artist, as a creator for putting in the time. You know, I spend a lot of my time as well on the old show and on the show with Creator Now interviewing successful digital creators, YouTubers, TikTokers, and there's a commonality and a common thread between all of the ones who had been creating for a long time before really finding success. And that commonality is is that if I'd gotten successful, if I'd gotten popular, if I'd gone viral sooner, I wouldn't have known how to handle it. And those years I spent making content for a small audience ended up being incredibly beneficial for when I had success. And I was able to capitalize on my opportunity because I'd done the work. I'd put the reps in. And the same thing applies here, right? We see this with Fred. Fred had, again, hundreds, potentially thousands of shows and opportunities started to come to them. And when he got his lucky break, he didn't have to rely on luck to make... he, He didn't rely on luck. He would get lucky breaks and then his experience his work, the reps he'd put in would give him the ability to make the most of the lucky opportunities. And so putting in your reps is important. And that's something too to hold on to if like you're someone, whether you are an artist or a creator or however you define yourself as, is if it's taking time and it's taking longer than you want for things to, to get that momentum, just know that the work you're doing now is going to benefit you when you do make it. That there isn't a wasted rep. Every single rep you take will benefit you in the long run. And another thing too, and I kind of talked about this earlier, how like Fred's able to recall all of everyone he's ever worked with and he doesn't necessarily, he looks at them all on an even playing field and stuff like that, is to make friends with your cohort. And what does that mean? It means that so often you can, we can get, I say you, but like me as well, we can get caught up looking at the, the successful people of today and wanting to be friends with them. Like in a YouTube context, I want to be i want to be friends with Mr. Beast. I want to be friends with Eric. I want to be friends with Ryan Trahan. And I understand that. But I also think there's something to be said for making friends with the people that are at your level, feels like a weird way of putting it, but like people around you right now. And like, we see this throughout history. And I mean, in Fred's context, he's name dropping, um, some of the guys he went to school with who I think he still works with to this day. I believe one of them contributed to his album, if I'm not mistaken, and the name escapes me right now, um, uh, but went on to write hit me with your best shot. Another guy I went on to write, I think it's black velvet was the song. Um, yeah, black velvet. And like, these are all guys he went to school with and he's still friends with to this day. And kind of the takeaway there is like the people you are around right now will be the successful people of tomorrow i listened to a gary Vee podcast recently and it was not even a podcast it was like a meeting of him with i think it was like their interns for the year or the the semester or something like that and someone asked him what advice would you give you if you were in this intern class right now and he was like the advice i would give is make friends with everybody here because in on this call, all of the interns, the people that are here will go on to become the CEO or the CMO of Pepsi, of Coca Cola. They will create a massive company. They will be in a spot to be able to give your kid an internship in 25 years, like, or whatever it might be. Like, yes, it's cool to become friends with the famous people and the successful people of today, but the successful people of tomorrow are sitting next to you right now. And so don't be so caught up looking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm looking up, I guess, to not notice the people that are standing on your left and right. Because you will all climb together, right? And some of you will, will get to different levels and be able to pull each other up to that level with them. And so your cohort is valuable, the people around you. And it, and not looking at it from like a transactional lens either, right? Like just actually build relationships. Don't build transactional relationships, build real relationships with the people around you. And like, again, this is this is like I said earlier and I never actually closed that loop. This happens throughout history, where famous people just end up somehow getting together. And I was just talking with my friend Danny on the phone. He was telling me how like J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and a bunch of famous authors from that time all used to meet like every Saturday. Or if you listen to the podcast, How to Take Over the World, Ben Wilson, that's his name, right? Ben Wilson. Ben Wilson talks about how like, I think he calls it like the gang of misfits or miscreants or the, I don't know, My I can't remember what it's called, but he's like throughout history... These successful people all happened to be in the same place at the same time. Or like, what was it called? The movie pack or the something like that. Whatever it was like in the seventies, you had Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, Francis Ford Coppola, Steven Spielberg were friends. They weren't famous yet. They were just friends. Was it called the Rat Pack? That wasn't, they weren't the Rat Pack. The Rat Pack was like, um, what's this? uh, Frank Sinatra. Um, either way. Throughout history, you can find examples of famous creatives, famous artists, all coming together with those in their cohort. And they would go on to accomplish great things together because when you're around a group of talented individuals, you will all push each other. You'll all learn. You'll learn quicker. Even a more contemporary example of that is Mr. Beast, right? Mr. Beast, when he was trying to grow on YouTube, found... A group of other people who were just as obsessed as he was and they would spend hours every single day on Zoom talking about ideas, strategies, learnings, takeaways, what worked, what didn't. And they all grew together and obviously Mr. Beast ended up becoming the biggest but I think every single person that he had there is over a million subscribers if not more than that today. And so they all learned together. There was a gang of them that ended up popping off, and it happens throughout history. So don't ignore your cohort. Make friends with your cohort and this one too like this next one kind of relates to a point i made earlier but like you never know where fred because he put the reps in was able to make the most of his opportunities and you never know when those opportunities are going to come right or how opportunities are going to connect like he says to this day he still doesn't know how we got the gig with queen but he went on tour with alice because he worked a session with someone in alice's band right and you might not and he didn't know at the time that they were looking for a keyboard player but he just showed up to the, to the session, did a great job, and the guy was like, yo, do you want to come on tour with us? We're looking for, another, for a new keyboard player. Our keyboard player, Joey Tchaikovsky, just left. Do you want to join the band? And again, like we talked on the podcast, this is near Alice Cooper's peak. And so this is a huge opportunity that he got from just doing a session gig in Toronto, and next thing he knows, he's on The Tonight Show. And the takeaway there's like one, you never know which opportunities are going to lead to what. What one opportunity will lead to the next, but two, is that how you do everything is how you do anything, right? And what that means, what I mean by that is like if Fred had known he was going to do an audition for Alice Cooper, I feel like from what I gather is the approach, the preparation, the in- his how he was in the studio that day versus how he being would be the exact same because he's just trying to make the most and do his best in every given context. He wasn't mailing it in in the session. He was trying to give his absolute best. And we can assume if it had been an audition for Alice Cooper, he would have been giving his absolute best. And so make the most of every opportunity. You never know what's going to come from it. And how you do everything is how you do... Sorry, how you do anything is how you do everything. And part of that too, which is important thing when it comes to Fred, is like he he had no agenda. Like, he didn't take the session... He didn't take the the session with the guy from Alice Cooper's band, and the name escapes me, so I apologize. But he didn't take the session with the guy from Alice Cooper's band because he's like, oh, I bet you I can... If I make an impression, like, he'll ask me to go on tour with them and stuff like that. Like, there was no ulterior motives. Fred is there to do a good job, and that's it. And you can probably pick up on that just as a person like you can probably tell that's why he's here he's not trying to go out of his way to make an impression or anything like that like he's going to show up he's going to do his job he's going to do a great job and that's what he expects to get out of it he's not expecting other things to come he's just there to do the job and i think that that comes across in a good way especially when you're dealing with famous people where everyone wants something from them and if you aren't someone who is actively looking like you're, you're trying to get something from them, they probably appreciate that and probably builds a level of trust, right? And I think that was part of Fred Mandel's success as a musician is he made the most of every opportunity. He was focused on that opportunity and not trying to leverage it for another one. And also he was just a good guy to be around. He would crack jokes. He said that like, he tried to keep the mood light when he was touring because touring can get tough. Next point. Nothing too, which I think is just important, like this is almost like a reminder for myself, is like Fred talked about how he's not a snob to any music taste or genre. He'll work on anything, any genre. Like today he's worked on um, rock and metal and he's worked with Lady Gaga, which I guess you could describe as pop and he's worked on country. And he's not, like he doesn't judge any music taste or genre. I think that's an important reminder too, right? Like there is validity in every form of, music or whether you're a creator in every form of content or if you're a movie in every form of film there is validity there and if you're not a snob to any of those you can learn a lot you can get opportunities um and the learning thing is interesting i like learning lessons from differing industries and applying them to like just taking one industry or listen from one industry and applying it to another because um, you can find so much if you're not a snob and i think that's just an interesting point point. and kind of mind that point too it's all valid like well, not only are all tastes valid all levels are valid and i thought it was a fun a fun note to end on not for this takeaway i have a few more but like for the interview with fred where he was talking about like how maybe like as a musician whether you are a touring musician you have a band you are playing local gigs you're getting paid to play local gigs you're playing local gigs for free or you just have a guitar in the house they like to pick up and strum around every once in a while like it's all valid it's all music and it's all something you can do for love and that you can love. And I thought that was cool, you know, and part of that, and that, I think relates back to him not being a snob because in his mind, like he said, it's all valid. It's all music. Another thing too, talking about is we talked about um, working in, in a group or as a solo act as a solo artist, you know, cause he's worked, he worked on Queen on Queen projects. And he worked with the guys from Queen on solo projects. He worked with Freddie on Mr. Bad Guy and he worked with Brian May on Starfleet project, which is two of their solo solo projects. And he's one thing that I thought was interesting too, but like one thing is like with, with Queen specifically, and we, I've talked about this quite a bit based off my previous interview with Peter Freestone and some of the essays I've written and stuff. Is like Queen's creative process was by committee, right? It's like all the guys would work on a song, all the guys would write songs, they would all contribute. And that probably elevates your work to a certain degree, right? And like this was, the point being made on the show was not everything artistic can be judged commercially, right? And so for a guy like a Freddie Mercury or like a Brian May, with Brian May, when he's making the Starfleet project, his intention with this isn't to necessarily make it the biggest album of the year. It was just an artistic expression for him as a way to get something off his chest to do his thing, to hang out with some friends and jam and have a good time and and immortalize that time in, in the shape of an album. And so as a creator, as an artist, you have to determine what your goal of what you're making is. That's an important part. Is, is this something that should be judged commercially? Is it something that sh- are you doing purely for artistic reasons? Um, it's just an important thing to, to note down, right? And how that creative process differs, right? Like working in as a solo act in a solo setting, you can sometimes create without restrictions or constraints because you are guided by your own interests and whatever catches your eye, but as a band, you're kind of, you have to play within the constraints of the band and working with the other members of that band. And so with that in mind, like that can, in theory, elevate your work, right? If having people that can give you, I think that the takeaway from me is like having people who can give you real feedback can elevate the work, right? And that comes back to being around with your cohort, right? You don't have to be in a band or like split what you're doing with someone else, but just to have people there who can give you real feedback matters, Next thing, too, is, I think I just wanted to note down, it's like, I just want to be releasing work and doing things that excite me when I'm 70. You know, like, Fred's making his first album. And I think that that's awesome. You know, he, he joked, he, like, laughed on the on the podcast, and he was like, yeah, it's a little late. But like, he also said he doesn't care. And, you know, yeah, who cares? Like, if you're having fun, like, I, I think the thing was, I don't want to be having fun at 70. I want to be doing things I enjoy. I want to be releasing work still making things um that was takeaway i had and i don't have a lot of like crazy thoughts on this one it's just something that i uh that i just i just aspire to do when i'm when i get older next one here and this is one that i wanted this is one that I've, i've been thinking about a lot since the podcast is has greatness been diluted and so the point being made like where this kind of came up in our inner conversation was Fred has a friend named Philip Sace, who is uh, from Toronto, actually, another fellow Canadian, who is an unbelievable guitar player. Like Fred said, if it was 1977, he'd be the most famous guitarist on the planet. He's so good. And the whole world doesn't know him, but they should. And it's like, why don't people know him? He's he's great. And part of it too, is like we talked about like the culture has moved on a little bit, like guitar isn't the centerpiece like it once was. But Fred, we talked a little bit like the the idea of greatness has been diluted, right? Like there's so much out there that the great stuff doesn't necessarily always rise to the top. And I've been thinking about this a lot. And I'm like, because I've also talked, we've talked about this before with Mike Hill about if it is great, it will rise to the top. And I think greatness is obviously can be subjective. It can be relative to the environment, to the culture, to what's happening in the world, right? Like again, with Philip Says, guitar is in the center point. So I think... I I don't necessarily think we'll ever get to a place and I but it's like I go back and forth right like where greatness will be at the forefront like it once was where greatness is is known by everybody and I think that was like a that was like one of our how we used to to measure greatness is like who knows about it how many people know about it but I don't know if that's necessarily possible and like it's like i'm i'm this is like a conversation i'm still having in my head right and so like i kind of want to hear if you can weigh in at some point maybe dm me i know you can't answer right now but like dm me or something with your thoughts on this like do you think greatness has been diluted because i think about like for example like oprah's concurrent viewership record let me just google it quickly if i can find it i'm pretty sure it was like over a hundred million people oprah concurrent viewership um i can't find it i tweeted it at one point actually of comparing oprah's concurrent viewership um to uh twitch's concurrent viewership record and it's just nuts here we go yeah i don't think people understand just how big oprah is her interview with michael jackson got 90 million views in an hour and 60 million concurrent viewers the Twitch concurrent viewer record is 3.3 million. So Oprah got almost 20 times the amount of concurrent viewers than Twitch did, than the Twitch record did. And the argument was like, yeah, well, and like, Mr. Beast will get 150 million views on a video, which is fair. And that's a ridiculous amount hard to wrap your head around. But I also don't know if a Mr. Beast video is. um. Not cultural because he is culturally relevant. And I think his his cultural relevance will continue to grow as this younger generation becomes older and older, um, which is part of it. But I think like when Oprah would do something like that, it would be an event. And I don't necessarily know if like, and it would just be an event within culture. And I don't think a Mr. Beast video yet, and I could be wrong about this. So feel free to debate me is an event within culture, right? Like, I don't think people outside of the pocket of people that care about Mr. Beast talk about when he has a new video coming, And I would imagine, and this is just purely anecdotal, so to be fair, I should probably—I don't like research these. Right, I do these in one take, so like, there might be some inaccuracies. But I feel like there was a lot of hype built up around this Oprah interview. And again, yeah, Mr. Beast will get 150 million views on a video, which is true, and again, staggering, and should not be minimized in any way. But I also don't think, like, I think he just set most, like, he just recently, um did how many videos did he do he just recently posted a video that did like i think it was like 70 million views in 24 hours or something which again is crazy uh i I just want to try and find it because he just did it for his like yacht video um i'm trying to see yeah here we go so here in 24 hours how many views did he do on his last video um 47 million views in 24 hours, which is the second most watched non-music YouTube video within the first 24 hours, which is, again, crazy. 47 million views. But then again, Oprah got 90 million views in the first hour of the release of the Michael Jackson video or the Michael Jackson interview, airing of the Michael Jackson interview. And again, there's an argument there too where it's like, well, Mr. B's video is is available on demand so you don't have to tune in versus if you want to see that Michael Jackson interview, you had to tune in in that given hour, which is fair and a, and a criticism and a valid counterpoint I should say but at the same time I don't know if we'll ever get to that place again where 90 million people tune in the same hour to watch two celebrities talk which is what that was right like I I just think that there because of the internet because of how culture is now it's so fragmented that we won't get to that place again and like again and Brad uh, not Brad uh, ben Affleck talked about recently how like celebrities are getting older, and like older in the sense of like JLo is still performing. Jennifer Aniston, Adam Sandler, they're all in their like fifties and sixties. Not sixties. That can't be right. I don't think they're is Jennifer Aniston in her sixties. That would be crazy. Um, Jennifer Aniston. Let's see. Jennifer Aniston, fifty four. She's not in her sixties. But either way, they're in their fifties. And celebrities. Like if you go back a few years ago, like a few, like 20, 30 years ago, movie stars weren't in their fifties, right? Like I think Ben Affleck and how like Robert Redford, they were like how like going off into the sunset of his career at thirty-seven. So what is happening now? Why are these people still relevant? Seems like a harsh term, but like why are they still relevant? And the, the answer that that Ben gives is like they were the last set of celebrities before the internet. So they were the last set of celebrities that everyone knew. Right? Like, not everyone will know pockets of, like, there's so much content, and there's so much out there now that there's so many little pockets of greatness that will never have one overarching greatest anymore. And there are a few, like, in Ben said so like, that will punch through, like a Taylor Swift, a Drake, I guess you could probably argue. He also said Harry Styles was one. Drake was my addition. Uh, ben Affleck didn't say Drake. But it's just going to become rarer and rarer, I think. So, has greatness been diluted? Uh, I'm leaning towards yes. And I think that the cat's out of the bag. And that's like one of my like just thoughts on life is like once the cat's out of the bag, you don't really get to go back. The cat doesn't go back in the bag. Um, and the cat's out of the bag, you like, there's just so much content. I don't think we get to a world where everything is so unified again. I think this fragmentation is just going to continue happening. And we I think, can we talk about this last week? I've talked about the summer recently where it's like, is that a good thing? Yes and no. Like it's probably a good thing for creators right where it's like you can still probably have the semblance of a normal life and stuff but then again there's like you i don't know either way the takeaway is greatness hasn't been diluted i'm leaning towards yes i'd love to know what you think again you can message me on instagram at the jacob kelly the next one. Oh, also i guess this kind of ties into what we we're actually talking about is like with everything so fragmented is you have to find what you're looking for Like, it's out there. There is great music. There is great guitar. There are great movies. There are great books. But there's so much shit that you have to filter through to find the good stuff yourself. You have to seek it out. Versus before, it was relatively easy to find. But now, in a fragmented world, in order to create something that is widely consumable, it has to be simple enough that everyone can enjoy it, right? And so, the great stuff won't bubble to the top as much. Because it's not, it might not be simple. It might not be easy enough. It might not be widely consumable. And so there's a lot of good stuff out there. You know, I think with this, like with YouTube, even, and if my, like there are, is good stuff. And I had a friend, a, I had a friend, I have a friend. I had a conversation with a friend, uh, Kate Ward from creator now, who is honestly one of my favorite human beings on the planet, just a great, a great human. Um, and that's literally whenever anyone brings her up, that is like my, oh yeah, I know Kate, one of my favorite people in the world. Um, we were talking about this, and, like, she inspired me because she started doing this. She has a playlist of, on her YouTube of, like, not, like, she, not, like her YouTube channel, like, just, like, where she watches YouTube, her YouTube account. And she has a playlist of, like, whenever she finds good art or good videos, she'll save them there. And that's, that inspired me, so I started doing that. So I have a folder on my YouTube called Art with Heart where I add these great YouTube videos to it. And I'm very, very stingy with what gets in there. I truly want something. If something is good, I will add it. Um, and I just want to see what I, I have, like, probably six videos in there right now. Art with Heart, I have seven. Um, I have, I just turned 20 and I Feel Alive by Natalie Lynn, Do What You Can, Casey Neistat, um, How to Steal, like, an Artist by Streetstruck. Um, I trained, like, an Olympic boxer, Michelle Carey, um, the Adam Sandler Paradox by Doddford, and a couple other videos, and they were like, there is good stuff out there being made. You just have to look for it. And again, that applies to movies and TV show, right? It's like people complain about the fact that, like, Everything now is just sequels and rehashes and reboots and remakes. And like, that's fair. And like, I have an interview about that on here. So like, that is a sentiment I felt. That's a sentiment I've tapped into. And that is a valid criticism. But also there's so much with the overabundance of content. There's so much out there that you could go and watch that is good. That is interesting. That's not a sequel that is original, but people aren't looking for it. And so it's weird where it's like, if you just have to do a little bit of work to find these things. And I think that's the frustrating part It's like, people are like, oh, this shit sucks. Okay, well then go... Okay, well then don't watch that. They're like, yeah, but this is all there is like no, there's all this other stuff out there. And like, nah, but this, like, but, but this, ah, I'm sick of sequels. Then don't watch a sequel. And so it's like greatness is out there. You just have to find it, which is weird, right? Because it used to be served to you. Um, and under humans like just are lazy, and that's not like a criticism. That's just like a <laughs> fact of life. And so it's hard, right? But like if you can go out there and find it, you can find some truly great work. The last, I've got two, and one of them is going to take me two seconds. So the last one, the last real one, I guess, is superstars have a combination of everything, right? Like I'm talking, I asked Fred, like, what makes these people successful? You've been around so many great acts, great talents. What makes them successful? And what Fred said was, you know, obviously, like, he said they're driven. He's like, that's the combination. They're all driven. They all work incredibly hard. And on top of that, he's like, and then if you want to get technical, you know, they're great writers. They can sing. They can perform all those things. And kind of what my, he also said they have something undefinable, right? They have like an it factor, which like I've, I've taught, I've written about the it factor. There's a video on my YouTube channel. It's my least viewed video. Um, it's like two minutes, but it's like I, where I try to like put a finger on the it factor. And I think about the it factor is you can't, right? Like I can, I will tell you what I wrote right now. This is what I said about the it factor. I'm just pulling it up. It, this is like, Literally two seconds. Um, So the essay is called Meditations on the It Factor. And so when someone is gifted, we say they have it. But what exactly do they have? Like, what is it? They don't actually have anything, but yet there's something there. The It Factor is a paradox. It's something intangible that you can feel. The It Factor is timeless. It's both old and new. It's something you've never seen before, presented in a context you're familiar with. If it were completely new, you'd have nothing to compare it to. And this is something that like, I actually think is important. And I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's like in order to give people something new to evolve as an artist as a creator you can't just jump to something completely different you have to stay not stay within the confines of what's been done but not stray too far from them either you have to be able to to do something new within the confines of what's already been done because if it's too far on the outside people will reject it people will push it away it'll be too weird too different too strange and people won't adopt that it has to be somewhat familiar but presented in a new way anyways The Factor is also a surprise. Like it has to catch you off guard. Your expectations have to be completely usurped. The medium has to be transformed in such a way that it transforms you. You'll never be impacted by something you see coming. And again, that kind of relates to the last one, right? Where it's like it's something you're like you go in thinking you're going to get one thing because it's in a context you're familiar with, but it will be something new. So it will catch you off guard, but it's done within the confines of what you're familiar with, which will set the expectations that you will then usurp when you have the factor. And it'll be obvious, like the factor is a little obvious, it will hit you in the face, if you can miss it, then that wouldn't be the factor. It's also not forced, like those who have it make it look effortless, they don't go to it, it comes to them naturally, it can't be manufactured, it can only be harnessed by the few who can tap into it. The strange thing about it though, is those who have it can't feel it themselves, it can only be felt by those around them. The factor can't be described either, right, like Fred literally said, it's like something you can't necessarily put your finger on you know, you'll search for the right words, the right comparisons, but none of them will do it justice. You won't be able to put your finger on exactly what makes that person special. That mystery will be part of the allure. And also like the it factor isn't one thing. It's a combination of everything that makes someone unique, right? Which is kind of the point I was getting to is like, the it factor is not only the fact someone is really good at a lot of things, they're really good naturally, but then they also have this drive that will make them work harder, right? There's the saying where it's like what it's hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. Here's my addition. But when talent works hard, you're kind of fucked. <laughs> um, but I think that's just the takeaway. All these great people, they have a natural ability, but they don't rest on it. They, they, they work harder they, than anyone else, despite already having a natural gift that makes them better than 99.99% of people. My last takeaway, and this will only make sense if you listen to the interview. So if you didn't, you should go back and listen to it. My last takeaway is don't hang around bats. <laughs> but anyways this is the, this is the end here of the takeaways. I appreciate you for listening to this. I appreciate you for listening to the interview with Fred. If you have, even if you haven't, I still appreciate you. Thank you. Seriously. If you want to follow me, actually, uh, even if you don't want to follow me, if you just want to message me, I love chatting about these interviews and like my takeaways compared to yours. Um, my Instagram is at the Jacob Kelly. So you can feel free to come and say hello. My DMS are always open. I love to chat about this. Um, but thank you once again for listening. We'll talk soon.